This is episode three of the Moral Money Podcast. Hi, this is Jeremy Kalin, and I'm the host of the Moral Money Podcast, a collective inquiry into how money binds our lives together and how money can strengthen our spiritual connections. In this episode, we're joined by two members of the leadership team at Jewish Family and Children's Service of Minneapolis, Judy Halper, the CEO, and Dana Rubin, the Development Director. We speak specifically about JFCS's work, including a few of the 30 or so programs that they operate for clients in need across Hennepin County, the largest county in the state of Minnesota with about one and a quarter million people. Judy and Dana talk about why JFCS serves all people in need, not just the Jewish community. I asked them to appear together because Judy and Dana are true partners in fundraising and donor engagement, and they speak in moral terms about giving, particularly about why give to JFCS. You can learn more about Jewish Family and Children's Service in Minneapolis on Episode 3's show notes at moralmoneypodcast.com by clicking Listen Now or the Episodes tab on the upper right. One note about sound quality. This episode is one where I was still getting the hang of the recording equipment. You can hear Judy and Dana pretty well, thank goodness, since they're absolutely on point throughout the discussion, but you might have a harder time hearing my questions. I've done my best to boost the sound sufficiently, but it's still not great. Thanks for bearing with me, and I promise that sound quality improves on future episodes. As always, I hope you'll share this podcast with your friends, family, neighbors, coworkers, and congregants. I hope you'll download the episodes and check out the website, moralmoneypodcast.com. And one new thing, we're now searchable on iTunes. So please go there, uh, give us a positive review if you like the show, and rate us up. Again, Moral Money Podcast on iTunes. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoy the episode, and let's get on to Judy Halper and Dana Rubin. It's a great topic, and we could probably spend a long time on it. Yes, we could. So, uh, full disclosure, I'm a board member uh, at Jewish Family Children's Service in Minneapolis. My great-uncle Irv was, of course, an executive director. I have incredible respect for the work that that the agency does, but um, before we get kind of deep into the conversation about money and spiritual engagement and what it means for you, what it means for the organization, what it means for clients. Um, I want to start just laying a baseline here. So Judy, what's your day-to-day role here at JFCS? And then what's the sort of big picture? Yeah. Um, My role is really to um, be a a visionary leader. Um, I need to be able to keep all the plates spinning and um, and offering direction and guidance and um, ensuring that the organization's mission, its vision, and its values are um, are represented in all of the work that we do and um, so that's probably very very high level and um, and and so what that looks like is that uh, we have 30 programs and services here we serve about 15,000 people a year and people of all ages and backgrounds and we have counseling we have emergency financial assistance we have literacy programs we have services that help older people to age in place and we have a transportation program and on and on and we have all these essential services that keep people living better longer um, and um, and so the um, you know, my job is to ensure that we have the right staffing and the right resources and the right infrastructure to make all that happen. So that it's pretty high level, and um, and it's um, it can only be achieved by having people who pay attention and care about that vision. Awesome, thanks, Judy. Dana, what's your uh, day-to-day role, and what's your larger strategic role here at Jewish Family Children's Service? So my day-to-day role is to really oversee the operations of donor-directed opportunities at the agency. We have a number of ways that donors can give, and we focus on all of those different opportunities through our annual benefit, our annual campaign, legacy giving, endowment giving opportunities, and direct program support. So working on all that kind of on a day-to-day basis to ensure that the agency is financially stable beyond just client uh, p- 
payments from clients, government grants, things like that, that there's some donor-directed support that goes into our budget every year. So strategically, you know, I think that my responsibility is to really work with our communications department to make sure that people in our community and beyond our community understand JFCS, have the opportunity to give to JFCS, and why giving to JFCS is important in the big picture. And I would just add to that <clears throat> that, um, you know, once upon a time, organizations like this one were funded entirely by federated giving. And in our case, that would be United Way and the Minneapolis Jewish Federation. 100% of our funding, so everything we did was in service of those federated organizations or vice versa, depending how you look at it. In today's world, about 10% of our funding comes from those two entities, and we have to raise the 90% that is necessary to serve all the various needs, and we do that by government funding and foundation funding and individual donors, and as Dana said, in client fees, and it's a, it's a very um, rich soup that, yeah. um, that comes together on a daily basis to make this place operate. So a lot, there are a lot of different constituencies and a lot of different stories that need to get told to different audiences in order to make this roughly $10 million budget uh, operate. Um, and you both, I mean, this, I'm glad you're both here to, to, for this conversation because it is, uh, there are deep connections, Dana, that you have to drive that then have to be consistent with the broader stories that are being told and vice versa. It's very um, intersected. How do, you, how do you manage that uh, sort of storytelling, what are the what are the ways you talk about the work that JFCS does and the values, the reason why JFCS does that work? So at a high level, I would say that I am this external voice to the organization and I, if I'm doing my job right, then I am external to the organization um, 50% or more of my time meeting with potential donors, meeting with foundation people, meeting with government people, meeting with colleagues who do similar and related work, um, looking for connections, looking for partnerships. Um, that's my job because ultimately that brings resources, financial and other, into the organization. And Dana can talk about how she uses stories and, and in her job. Um, but I would say that the visual that I have is um, of um, you know water flowing up and water flowing down information has to be in a continuous flow it has to flow down from from level to level and, and place to place and similarly it has to flow back up we won't raise any money if we don't know what's happening in in our organization what the needs are what's growing what's expanding what needs to change what needs to be sunsetted who's being served, you know, et cetera. We have nothing if we don't know what's happening in all the different programs and services. And we have a great relationship with our program directors and managers, so we work with them, with their departments. We go to their meetings on occasion, and we ask for them to share stories of clients and uh, anonymously with us so that we can use them to, whether it's in a bigger picture for an unrestricted gift that people have been served over m multiple different levels of the agency, or something restricted to a program or direct service that we can share with people who are donating to those specific programs. So we gather stories all the time. We ask for people to share their stories. And not only do we ask for clients to share their stories, we've lately been asking for our staff to share their own giving stories and why they're giving and why it's important to them. And yeah. it doesn't matter if it's to our organization or to others. So can you maybe uh, um, uh, think about some of those stories of, of the work that JFCS does, the clients that, that you serve this, the, the stories that have moved you guys. I mean, this is, you know, mm -hmm. we've been starting to talk about the organizational structure, but it's really about the people that need to be helped. There are so many. Um, I have a few favorite stories, of course. Um, one of the ones that comes to mind is um, we started serving as an immigrant organization. We were a resettlement organization in 1910, meeting the needs of Eastern European Jewry who were coming to the United States. And they weren't coming because they necessarily wanted to, they were coming to save their lives. Different from those folks that came about 50 years earlier who were very successful, very educated, doing very well, and it was like, hey, America, the land of opportunity, let's go see what we can do there. Coming for a very different reason. And so in 1910, when people were coming to literally save the lives of themselves and their families, it was the Jewish community all across 
North America, but as since we're located here in Minneapolis, the Jewish community of Minneapolis got together and said, we got to help these people. These are our neighbors. These are our friends. These are our relatives. They have to learn a language. They have to learn English. They have to get their kids in school. They have to find jobs, and they have to get into housing. They're going to have so many needs, and if we aren't there for them, how will they become successful as we have become successful? So that story is repeated again and again before and after World War II and with the Russian immigrants who came in two waves in the 80s and in the 70s and 80s. Now, one story that will always stand out for me is a uh, couple who came to this community as refugees from World War II, having survived concentration camps and DP camps, came to the U.S. to start their lives over. And when the, and we did all the resettlement, and um, in this particular household, the woman said to me, and she's now she's still living. She's a very old woman, um, but a few years ago she told me that one of the reasons that she gives to this organization, and she has the capacity to be very generous, and she is very generous, and the reason that she gives is because after the war, when she and her husband came to this community the organization would loan them a few dollars and as they needed it and they would spend it for whatever and then they would pay it back and then they would borrow again and we were like you know an interest-free bank for them right so one day she came to the to JFCS and said I need money for a girdle and I don't have enough money for a girdle but I'm putting on some weight and I need a girdle and we loaned her the money so she could buy a girdle And she not only paid it back, but guess what? She was pregnant. She thought she was putting on weight, and she was pregnant. And she went on to have two children, and she and her husband built a beautiful family and a beautiful, um, a successful business and had a beautiful life. And she is ever grateful to us, and I love that story. Wow. That's amazing. And the uh, JFCS, we talk about the need to, to carry forward the legacy of board retreats and board conversations all the time and the um, uh, the need for JFCS to be able to continue to serve the next generations of girdle wearers <laughs> <laughs> or whatever mothers, right um, that uh, that's really powerful yeah that's an incredible story I've never heard that before yeah thank you for sharing it can I interject something because speaking of next generations I think some of the most powerful stories that I hear are simple but we see them uh, in paper all the time and it's Responses from kids who are getting scholarships for camp and for college, yeah. so kids expand to you know young adults for sure. But just the letters that we receive and the gratitude for what we have been able to do to enrich their lives, to enrich their Jewish experience in some cases, to help them to get an education so they can support their families and have a meaningful life for themselves have been really special. And aside from that, I think one particular story that resonate has resonated with me for a long time is one of the things that we have been able to do where multiple departments have come together to make a difference in someone's life. And uh, it's a a single mother whose children lived through kind of a traumatic experience and they were receiving counseling. And within that time period, both of the kids um, became littles in our big brother, big sister program. And really were able to get mentors and have a wonderful relationship with people from JFCS. We supported um, them with some financial need, uh, things that they needed, drivers, education, things like that. So just a multitude of things coming together to help support a family have been really impactful. And of course, when it impacts kids yes, even more, right. because I think that people remember that and those kids will remember that in some cases and hopefully pay it forward. Absolutely. I think the, um, I'd like to talk more about the work that that of the C and JFCS. So we'll mm-hmm. talk about the J mm-hmm. for sure in more depth, but um, JFCS now is about 50% um, mm-hmm. non-Jewish clients and 50% Jewish clients mm-hmm. across the 30-something programs, yep. right? Um, uh, so, you know, my kids are uh, now six, and we've been blessed with getting a PJ Library uh, mm-hmm. book show up at our house yeah. Uh, every month. Yeah. And it's made it so it's not been a chore at all for that we've had to take on. It's set this default of having, you know, now five, six dozen, uh, sometimes more because there's two kids. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, Jewish books. Yeah. Um, 
that are just at the age appropriate level. It's kind of a minor miracle about how everything just sort of works and just shows up, right? Yep. Like kids <laughs> love it and they love it. It's mail with their name on it yep. and they get to open it. Um, but maybe uh, I, I would ask you guys to talk about a program that's one of my favorites that you've lobbied for at the legislature, mm-hmm. the Parent Child Home Program. Yep. Uh, that largely serves non-Jewish yeah. kids, right? So you know, you're 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 um, on the edges of of um, of a statement that I find myself saying quite frequently, which is because we're Jewish, we serve everyone. It's really about tikkun olam. Another thing I like to tikkun olam repair of the world. One of the things I like to say is we're not commanded to fix the world for Jews. We're commanded to fix the world mm-hmm. for all of us. And, um, and for, we have a very diverse staff, and so as I talk about this concept of tikkun olam, what I like to share is that the world was intentionally left imperfect, mm-hmm. and that it is incumbent upon all of us, and aren't we lucky to do, get to do work that is so personal, that does change the world bit by bit and person by person, and that that's what it's all about. So when you talk about the Parent-Child Home Program, that is indeed a very good example of a program that is by and large not serving the Jewish community, but serving the broader community. And I should say that some of our programs at JFCS serve intentionally and directionally the Jewish community. And some are for everyone, and um, the majority of them are serving everyone. A few of our programs do serve, by and large, a non-Jewish or a broad audience. That would be our career services and the parent-child home program. So the parent-child home program began, um, it it was mission fit, and frankly, going back to money, we had a donor who came to us and said, I wanna make a difference. I have the capacity to do something meaningful, and I'm looking to work with very young children. What have you got? The truth of the matter is, for about 10 years, we had been doing a program very successfully in the St. Louis Park School District, serving at-risk children and their families. And it was very good work and was very meaningful, but we had realized after doing the program for many years, that we weren't getting to the children early enough. Mm. That by the time kids get to school, many of the problems that stand in the way of themselves and school success are set. And it's really hard to undo, not impossible, but hard. And so we knew we needed to work with children at a younger age, but we didn't have a program. And so when the stoner stepped forward, we realized we finally had the opportunity that we were looking for because it's nice to identify that you need to do something, but then you need the resources to do it. And she was willing to provide that seed funding. We started that program. Oh, and by the way, I should say that we did some research and found we didn't want to necessarily come up with a program if there was already a successful program out there, and there was. The Parent-Child Home Program has been around since the 1960s, and it is a um, home-based literacy program targeting children between the ages of 18 months and four years of age. It's a two-year program. And um, the inventor of this program, a child psychologist, realized that what stood in the way between um, children from low-income and low-educated families and their middle-class peers was simply the the, uh, access to language. That Hmm. language is what creates brain development. Brain development is what leads to school success. And so low-income and low-educated families tend to use fewer words than middle class. And so she developed this program. It's home-based, removes all the barriers to access, and uh, you don't have to be in trouble. It's not like you know social services is breathing down your neck. No, um, you don't have to pay for the program. It's free. Um, a book or toy shows up every week that you're participating. The program is a two-year program. It is 60 visits a year over 30 weeks times two, 120 visits. And each week a toy or book is brought as the mechanism to enrich the environment with language. If the child wants to play with the book or the toy, great. But it can also be used as a vehicle. If the one of the books we bring into the homes, um, which every middle class family will recognize, is Pat the Bunny. Well, Pat the Bunny is furry and soft and pink and, um, and it, it child size and uh, child friendly. 
You can read the book or you can say, what animal is this? This is a bunny. This Here's the bunny's ears. Where's my ears? Where's your ears? And it goes on and on and on. And the, the book or the toy is used as a vehicle to stimulate language so that when it's left behind and the home visitor comes back two days later, over time what is developed is at that second visit each week an opportunity to observe the parent mm. interacting with the child and the child interacting with the parent and the acquisition of language and the use of language and it's it just it becomes yeah. brain development and school readiness and um, the the longitudinal study that was begun in the 1960s showed that kids who participated in this program with absolutely no other interventions went on to school success and graduated from high school at the same rate as their middle class peers so we were sold on this program the first year we did it we served 18 families in 2017 we're starting a school year right now. This year we will serve 250 families, and our goal is to get to 300. And you've been really outspoken and engaged at the legislature in asking for more funding. Right. Um, I keep on trying to make your, your job even more difficult by trying to add a zero to the, to the ask. And, mm -hmm. <laughs> and uh, you wisely insist that we take on what we can chew as, as we grow and serve these families. But um, I... Uh, I want to drill down into this for uh, a moment to talk about how you engage legislators. And you've been in the fight, in the room, when they're putting together the K-12 budget as 40% of our state's uh, annual budget. So um, how do you talk about JFCS as a as a uh, serving both Jewish and non-Jewish mm -hmm. clients? And how do you talk about um, this particular program, knowing that legislators, with great empathy mm -hmm. for legislators who are putting together a moral mm -hmm. budget, right? Right. How do you do that? Right. Well, um, one thing that I have found to be quite powerful um, in today's world is the whole notion of the public-private partnership. And once you say that, then you've got everyone's attention. Because, um, as you well know, um, government ha it does not see themselves any longer as being the bank but they will be a partnership. They want to see that um, that what they that what they offer is the opportunity to um, to extend a program. Um, but they don't necessarily want to invent a program. Mm -hmm. um, programs come and programs go. Yes. They want to know. They want to look at outcomes and they want to see success. And then they want to, you know, frankly take credit for all that success. So <laughs> I mean, you know, so As a former legislator <laughs> myself, I can say that. Uh, you we, said I could be blunt. Absolutely. You know, we, we both want to be moral uh, and do, like, none of the 201 legislators run to do nothing. Right. Right. We all run to do something. Right. And want to do some good with it. But, uh, but we also, you know, we run, you know, we have egos, right? Yeah. That's why we can be generous, the most, those of us who strive to be generous public officials. And, now, and it's you our have, name that it's on You have right. egos and you have voters and you have elections. Yes. And so yes. the thing, the other thing that really speaks volumes is saying, hey, we we either serve your district or we could serve your district. Right. And we have to, and we've, we've been very intentional about that. Um, we, you know, the... Um, we, we have to, frankly, we have to really talk about the fact that we're Jewish Family and Children's Service and this program is the Parent-Child Home Program. And it isn't our program. I mean, we're really, um, we're, we are bringing this program or we brought this program to Minnesota. It's happening all over the country. And that um, with support from the state, they have an opportunity um, to really be able to say, look what Minnesota is accomplishing. And by the way, uh, Minnesota has a big achievement gap. We have a real problem with achievement in this state. And so we've already got their attention. But to your point about the J in our name, we really do have to say, um, because I think people you know, are thinking, are you asking for money for the Jewish community? So we do have to say, um, this is one of our many programs, and this particular program is serving the broad community to qualify for the program you have to be of a certain income level and a certain education level and you know here's who we're serving we've got all the data and all the statistics and as you know several years ago now we actually went out state to greater minnesota and this program is being done um, in a community that in, that includes an Indian reservation so we are saying not only can we have success in the twin cities uh, regional area, but we can do it in remote areas, in, in areas where there aren't enough resources. And this has been demonstrated throughout the country as well. And one of the things I like to stay, say at our legislature is that 
the state of Massachusetts has adopted this throughout their entire state. Every qualifying family in the state of Massachusetts is getting this program. And again, private yeah. um, public partnership. Yeah. I just want to say I think one of the unique opportunities with this program has been what we've learned about giving. This program is our largest donor-funded direct direct really? program support funded program. So donors in some cases, I mean, and I think that's not only helped us on a grant level, on a state level in mm -hmm. terms of additional funding, but I think what we've learned too is where there's always this little bit of fear that the Jewish community only wants to support the Jewish community and that's what we need to do, that we've been able to branch out beyond that and people have said, we of course want to support the Jewish community, we will continue to support the Jewish community, but we're excited about what you're doing that's in the non-Jewish community and we want to support that too. And they've they've done that with this program. And you and I see that the Parent Child Home Program has become sort of the premier program here at JFCS that we should be able to go to the broad community and say, mm -hmm. help us fund this program because it's not serving, you know, the small pocket, mm -hmm. the Jewish community, it's serving everyone. Absolutely. And we, we, we are still working on that. It's not easy, but we do really feel like the message is clear. This is serving the broad community. It is serving people who are of low income and low education and it works. And if you want to see people contribute as taxpayers, this is the way to do it. But Dana, you get to sit down and have really deep conversations with people who want to support, whether JFCS broadly through uns uh, um, uh, unrestricted giving mm -hmm. or through these specific programs. What, what are those conversations like? How do you go into them? What do you hear from donors? What, can you think of a powerful story of these connections? Yeah, I think it's really about listening, and that's the biggest key thing is that I have to listen to what people are saying. So what I try to elicit from donors and take away from it is their stories. So questions that get to why they want to give to the community, what is important to, about JFCS to them. Sometimes, and I think what you find, not only do people open up about their stories, but they share a story with you about how they've been helped in the past. They share a story about something the traumatic that's happened in their family's lives or something good that's happened in their family's life that have been supported through some of the work that we do. I think some of the stories I've heard, one of the probably most powerful stories is a phone call from somebody who we've never even heard of before basically, who called because someone in their family had gotten help through mental health and counseling services over 20 years ago and they were ready to give back mm -hmm. and they wanted to give back with you know, support to the program in a really meaningful way, or meaningful way for them, you know, for them and for us. And I think it's stories like that that you hear, but it becomes emotional. You become attached to people because you really learn about them and not just about, you know, it's not just about money. It's really, it's really emotional. It's about stories. It's about feelings. It's about why they give, how they give, what they want to leave to their children, to their community to their families and understand kind of who they were as a person. The kind of core proposition for this conversation is that, for the podcast itself, is that money can be a means for deeper spiritual engagement in the world. Um, and you think you're touching on it. Um, I, mean, I, I find when I am uh, able to stretch ourselves uh, and give something more than what we might have planned, that it feels incredibly meaningful to me. And, uh, and I'm not quite sure why. It is, it is a spiritual act, though. There is something about the giving and the generosity. We were talking about um, Maimonides uh, and his levels of giving. Um, what, do, do either of you, I mean, why do you think it is that people do get emotional when they're giving something away, particularly money? What is it, what is it about that act and why JFCS that, that triggers it, too? I have come to believe that um, for many people, JFCS is their agent, um, that they invest in us their time or their uh, talent or their treasure, um, knowing that in some way that they may never ever really know, um, they are their, their contribution is changing the, the course of somebody's life. Um, that is incumbent upon us telling our stories effectively, um, which I think we, are, we become increasingly skillful at doing. But the more that we can say, um, you know, 
200 people are going to get a bag of groceries at Passover time that have those traditional ritual food items um, that allow them to participate in this holiday that they would not otherwise purchase because of their limited incomes. So for $18, can we, we sort of do this token thing every year. For $18, you can sponsor a bag. And so we become their agent because they can actually visualize. They can help deliver mm -hmm. if they want, but they can visualize these bags of groceries and what goes into those bags and who it's going to. And I think that is a religious experience Absolutely. for people who... And, you know, for people who may sit in a pew in synagogue and not necessarily connect, this is a connection. Mm -hmm. Helping somebody to participate in a holiday or to have enough food or enough resources, having people around a table who they might not have around a table with them. You know, I'll give you another example. In our Hag Sameach program, our Happy Holidays program, we have a number of people who participate in that program who are older who don't have the means to purchase a gift for their grandchildren. It's not about getting a gift for themselves. When I, I always love to gift wrap as, you know, uh, part of the program. And when I look at the list of who I'm doing it for, and it doesn't have any names, yeah. um, but oftentimes I notice that the participant is a 75-year-old, you know, grandmother with, you know, four or five uh, grandchildren, you know, teenagers to toddlers. And I'm wrapping gifts so that she can give them and say, Happy Hanukkah. I'm uh, having, a, I'm very moved by the way you just described, particularly the agency. The, uh, I mean, this, it's an agency, but the actually doing agency work for as a conduit for the, I'm looking right now, the symbol of, of uh, um, the, what do we call it, the logo, Stone. you know, is the Star of David with a heart inside, and the two of them connected really yep. is that it is the opportunity for folks to act out their Jewish values mm -hmm. um, regardless of the recipient itself, mm -hmm. which is one of the, I think it's the second to highest or third to highest level of, of right. giving, right? Um, but also that it is Jewish. Mm -hmm. It is about family mm -hmm. serving their children and grandchildren, and it is a service. Mm -hmm. What I also see from people a lot is, as Jewish people, we grew up with the word tzedakah. And a lot of people use that term to mean charity, but it really means justice or righteousness. Charity is really a spontaneous act of goodwill um, or generosity. Yeah. And I don't think people wake up in the morning saying, I'm going to give to JFCS today. I think people have really thought about how they're going to give and want to make the world a better place, want to make a difference. And they know that because of the work that JFCS does, their dollars will help make that yeah. difference and will continue to make that difference. And so I think people are thinking about, again, it's, it, without necessarily thinking about it or knowing that they're thinking about doing what's just and doing what's right, I think the conversations that we have here with people and with donors get to that point. And how does that conversation evolved in your time here at JFCS, and you've been involved in development for a mm -hmm. while, you're really, really gifted at it, we're lucky to have you here. Thank you. Um, how has that evolved, and how has it evolved, particularly like the next gen and, the, and millennial uh, conversations where maybe we're knocking a zero or two off of the, mm -hmm. the result, but what's that conversation like sure. in terms of how they trust or see their giving? Why not just hand it out at the mm -hmm. to the handler at the uh, at the stoplight? I'll, mm -hmm. I'll definitely let Judy jump in as well, but I think what we're doing is engaging people in a different way. So where older generation has seen things happen, have lived through the Holocaust, lived through things, lived through resettlement and things like that, younger generation wants to get involved, wants to actually physically see what they're doing face-to-face um, -face and be a part of it. So we're teaching people, we're engaging people in leadership opportunities, in volunteering opportunities. We're showing them what we're doing and then we're asking them to give back and to be a part of it. And that I think has made a difference just in how engaged we've yeah. uh, we've had this next gen of people, this group of people, uh, what kind of results we're getting in terms of philanthropy. It may not be the highest that we're ever gonna get, but we, the way that we've engaged people, we feel that not only will they continue to give for a long time, but they'll, and whether it's to us or someplace else, that they'll understand giving and understand the impact of it because of how we've brought them into the. Yeah, I think agency. the difference in the generations is that, you know, our grandparents or and our parents um, gave out of obligation. You were obligated. Mm -hmm. That was a responsibility of being an adult, as you give and you support 
you know, these various causes, synagogue, JCC, and so on. Um, you, you, it wasn't a question. You did it. That was an obligation. And I think the current generation is really very results-oriented because the truth of the matter is we're so effectively assimilated, you can give anywhere, and it yes. will be appreciated, and you don't even have to give a lot of thought. Um, every single day, we're barraged, really, with GoFundMes, right? And right. people, you know, all day long, you get requests from people saying, hey, I'm going to do this walk, I'm going to do this run, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. And, you know, you, you, you know, even a young person is saying, oh, you know, okay, here's $10, right. okay, right. here's $10. Absolutely. And and so, um, on the one hand, it has become a very sort of almost thoughtless, natural, like, of course mm -hmm. I'm going to fund you, right? Uh, but on the other hand... Um, there is this uh, awareness of results. Yeah. And I think they really, as Dana said, they want to know where their money is going and that it, that even if it is only $10, uh, they want to know, like, that $10, darn it, better right. be making a right. difference. Right. And, um, and something that Dana sort of hinted at, which is also very of this now generation, um, the now generation may not have, you know, tons and tons of resources. But when you say to them, why don't you think about making a gift of $10 a month, come straight, you know, Venmo, whatever, electronic, yeah. like boom, bada bing, bada boom, it's done. Um, and they totally respond to that. They totally, like, oh, yeah, I would spend yeah. $10 in two cups of coffee, right? Like, yeah. sure. Can I just tell you, when we first latched onto that, it was like a big light bulb because I must tell you that we have lots of people who are both older and much wealthier than these young people who don't give us $120 yes, a year. Right. So $10 a month is $120 mm -hmm. a year. And we were quite successful with this young group saying, I am not going to miss $10 a month. And how much of it is the social experience? It's not just the volunteering because I do right. think that there is this, there's a, uh, real need for authenticity, right? There's a real need to, to trust, and a way to trust is to actually do and touch and see the result of the organization in a very uh, direct way. Um, but the social and the peer-to-peer, -peer, mm -hmm. this reinforcement of that trust of this is something that, you know, four of my friends have also made this decision. Um, you, it's I, very effective. The whole notion of a giving circle and the whole idea of um, let's get together and, um, you know, for example, the this next gen group, um, they're going to be having their fall party in a few weeks. And it could just be purely social and they'd have a great time and they'd all feel good about being there. But that isn't the whole story. The whole story is they're having this party and they're working on what the volunteer project is going to be as a part mm -hmm. of this get together. And, um, and, and, and they just really have passion. Um, it, it is um, just so relevant for them to do something that will be active it will enhance the party because, you know, not everybody likes to stand around right. and make small chat, you know, um, that there's an activity and that that activity is going to be benefiting someone and that they all get to participate in this. Uh, they just buy it. Yeah. They like it. I'm also thinking about the uh, staff at JFCS. It's a remarkable commitment to giving back um, and, you know, even... Um, uh, I wish the, that Lee Friedman, the COO, who helped us uh, determine as a board a couple of years ago at, at your uh, strong leadership walking us through it, that we needed to reinvest in staff. And I think we even made an extra draw yes. out of the endowment to start that process of raising some salaries mm -hmm. across the board. But um, it's still social service mm -hmm. <laughs> and yeah. unfortunately is paid about half to you know two th or a third of what it really, what professionals should be paid. Mm -hmm. um, and yet, folks who are not making a whole lot of money are giving back to their own employer. Mm -hmm. um, and many of them are young, right? Mm -hmm. And can, yes. what, what are those conversations like with people who very much, this is a sacrifice mm -hmm. to give the $10 a month? Mm -hmm. I think, you know, we talk to the staff, uh, usually as a whole, there are some one-on-one -on -one conversations, but we present to the staff, not again, not as an obligation to give, but an opportunity to give back in a number of different ways. We present the annual campaign to the staff we allow staff to come to the benefit with half price tickets and you know to bring a guest and we've even done things like asking them if they bring someone new to the benefit that will give them half price tickets for bringing some yeah. new people to the benefit so invite them and welcome them in to be a part of things we've asked people to speak lately at staff meetings about giving and that's brought people again 
who aren't in the development department, who don't you know live it day to day, but to understand why their peers are giving and what is important to them. We, when a new staff comes on board, we send a tribute card to them, honoring you know honoring their position at JFCS yeah. and welcoming welcoming them aboard. And we see people using those cards and sending them to friends and family um, to recognize you know an honor, a memorial, yeah. or something like that, a celebration. So. I think those are the conversations that we have with people in terms of we we make it flexible, we don't put any pressure on anybody, but it we always let people know kind of where we're at, how we're doing, why it's important to give, and how, how you can do it and how you can make a difference. Um, the other thing that we like to um, message to the staff is it really isn't the amount that you give, but just that you make a contribution mm-hmm. because it's a very it is very powerful. I mean, you're a board member, and I can see that this is very powerful to you. It's very powerful to the board to hear mm-hmm. that the you know that nearly a hundred percent of the staff have made a contribution to our annual campaign. It um, it certainly is uh, you know it, it leaves an impression, and um, and we mean it. it it isn't about the size of the gift. If we can say nearly 100% of our staff is supporting and giving back, um, you know, that's 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 a pretty uh, cool thing to be able to say. Yeah, and I, I do think many of us recognize just how much it is a, a, a sacrifice to do the work that that the, uh, especially the early year staff, uh, the more junior staff uh, do here at JFCS, that they do it because it's a calling. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, the world doesn't, uh, value their uh, uh, work at a salary level the same as being like a business analyst at Target, for mm-hmm, instance. And mm-hmm. um, would, uh, but it were so, but unfortunately, right. and it is impressive to say that this work is mm-hmm. not only important from a sweat equity side, but also from mm-hmm. giving out, you know, uh, maybe giving a, a less impressive present mm-hmm. to their own family member. Mm-hmm. It does mean a lot. Right. Um, you guys have both been very, very generous uh, with your time. Um, I have three questions. One is uh, a little bit longer and then a couple of more uh, uh, closing ones. Um, I'm really interested in everyone that uh, I talk to about where you got your values about money. What's the first <clears throat> memory that you have of seeing money at work? And tell me more about how you think that manifests in, in your life, either one of you. Um, honestly, I think my first memory of money, I don't know how this began, but I remember as a very, very little girl, uh, and I have a, um, I have an older brother and I have a younger sister, and my older brother got an allowance because he was expected to do things around the house, and my sister and I were not. <laughs> we were, I want to live in your house. <laughs> and, um, but I remember being very, very little, and every day my sister and I, and we must have been like two and four years yeah. old, and we would run to the front door when we heard my dad coming home from work, and we would run to the front door, and we'd say, two kisses for two pennies. And every day we did this. And I don't think we even knew what pennies were. Yeah, right. But we were giving, we just were so happy to see my dad. And he was obviously very happy to, you know, give us his pennies. Um, but one of the stories that I, I love about money that really informed how I feel about it, and then I'll answer your other questions. This is one of my very, very favorite stories that my mother told me. So having told you I have an older brother and a younger sister, and, I, and when, there's not a big age difference. We're, you know, we're from start to finish, five years. Um, my dad came home. My parents are very solidly um, blue-collar, middle-class people, um, very intelligent people, but really did not have the financial opportunity to go to college. So my dad came home from work one day when my brother was probably six or seven years old, and I would have been you know, four and my sister two, something like that. And my dad came home, and he was so proud, and he went to my mother, and he said, guess what I did today? I bought a savings bond so that Jay will be able to go to college. Mm. And he was so proud. And my mother, without missing a beat, said, that's great. And what did you do for your daughters? Wow. It has been, and I must tell you, you know, we all went to college. And I have a master's degree. So, um, mm-hmm. you know, like that is a really important story for me. Mm-hmm. Love that. Um, my introduction to, to money around JFCS, um, I'm not exactly sure the beginning, but I will tell you that I had worked here for probably eight years as a licensed psychologist and as a program director. And one day I was approached by the exec 
who said, I want to talk with you about something. I want you to think about becoming the development director at JFCS. And I was astounded. Like, what do you mean you want me to be the development director? What do I know about raising money? And he said to me, I think you'd be really good at it because you're really passionate about what you do. You know the community and you're not afraid to ask for mm-hmm. money. And all the other mechanical stuff you can learn. And, um, and you know, I thought about mm-hmm. it and I thought, well, what the heck, I'll give it a, a try. And I have to say it's really changed my life. I love raising money for a cause that I believe in. And, um, and I love helping people to, um, to, to master their craft at doing it. Yeah. So I think one of the earliest memories, of course, as a little, little kid, I remember finding the Afikoman and getting money, but I don't know. I didn't know the meaning of money. I was young, very young, and didn't, you know, I don't know what I did with it, what I saved it for. But I grew up at Temple Israel, and they have kind of a policy, um, as, as you wish, but uh, for Saturday or Sunday school to bring Sadaka in every weekend. And I remember my mom giving us change in the car to bring in, and I think that's where I really learned about giving. Uh, we did it every week. We probably had one of the blue and white JNF yeah. Sadaka boxes in the house. I think a lot of people did. But I remember not only bringing in the money every week, but as we got older, um, we were able to choose as a classroom where that money went at the end of the year. So we talked about some options. We talked about charities, both Jewish and non-Jewish. I think, you know, as kids, people love the Humane Society and things mm-hmm. like that. And we got to decide as a classroom where the money went. In addition, I think, just growing up in the Jewish community, one of the other major memories I have of kind of fundraising and doing something good for the community was the Walk for Israel and raising money for that. Um, I think the walk used to be, I think, around Lake of the Isles. And as kids, we would, you know, get pledges to walk. How many miles would you walk and how many, you know, and we did it through the synagogue and through Sunday school. But I think I remember those are the kinds of experiences that I remember um, were more just because of my involvement in the synagogue and my involvement in the Jewish community. And as I got older, and grew up, I actually majored in gerontology and human aging, having nothing to do, of course, with um, fundraising. But when I was out of college, my first job basically was at the Minneapolis Jewish mm-hmm. Federation. I think what I realized right away, and I was in the development department, was that it, the, it, the, raising money is not hard. It's really about developing the relationships, and right. I'm good at that. I'm extroverted. Right. I like to talk to people. I feel like I can build relationships with people. And I was never asking for the money for myself. I was always asking for others who weren't able to ask or who needed it um, because of whatever circumstances they were in. And so it just came naturally. I was just uh, having a conversation with somebody the last couple of days about raising money as a, as a political candidate. Mm-hmm. And, um, and the ego of sort of, are you asking money for yourself? But you're not, I mean, I, I realized why it wasn't hard for me. And, Minnesota, we're very lucky that at my time it was if you raised fifty thousand um, dollars, that was you had a, you were flush, <laughs> you know, hit your spending limit and then some, which is not much for a political campaign. But it was always about the mission, about this sort of collective purpose and our values together, and what it would mean to have somebody giving voice to our values in the legislature in the seat, um, you know. And and every once in a while, I was like, hey, can you give it to me? But it it was a lot easier when you say, can you give it to my campaign because we're gonna because it's going to be this agency for, uh, you know, positive social change. It's, mm-hmm. um, it's hard to ask for money for yourself. I have tried to raise money for my, my own things, and it's far less uh, um, native to me, at least, <laughs> than it is to asking yeah. money for, mm-hmm. for something else. I, I think we're both, all three of us, very lucky mm-hmm. that we don't yeah. have to ask money for ourselves right, that right. much. Um, so two uh, closing questions. The first is a straightforward one. Where can people find you? Uh, website, social media? Yeah. So uh, JFCS's website is www.jfcsmpls.org. And um, my, you know, do you want our personal ones as well? Sure. Okay. And you can find <laughs> if you're me. comfortable, uh, people reaching out to you. Yep. So it's J-H-A-L-P-E-R at jfcsmpls.org. And I can be reached at D Rubin, R U B I N, at jfcsmpls.org. We also have a Facebook page. Great. Awesome. Thank you. And we'll, of course, have those in our show notes on the website. <laughs> um, lastly, uh, Dana, what's in your wallet right now? <laughs> what is in my wallet right now? Some credit cards, <laughs> my health insurance card, a couple coupons. <laughs> Some cash, mm-hmm. 
Um, the JFCS mission statement. Interesting. <laughs> it's always in there. Um, I think that about covers it. I actually keep it pretty neat and tidy. So. <laughs> Judy, what's in your wallet? Um, some cash, some credit cards, and some uh, coupons, and my insurance card, and my... Um, my uh, little thing from the eye doctor with my uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> with my prescription? my pres- <laughs> prescription, <laughs> and you know I, I'm laughing too because there was a time when you always kept pictures in there, but now we uh-huh. keep the pictures on the phone. There's no pictures in my wallet. Well, thank you both so much for your time and thank for your you. work at JFCS. You are truly making a difference and engaged in tikkun olam, and it's an honor to be on the board. We largely sit back and applaud and every once in a while I'll get to help help urge some direction or another but it's really uh, just cheer you guys on so thank you well thank, thank you. you and uh, you know the cheering is important because you serve as our ambassador we need lots of people out in the community uh, reminding people of who we are and what we do and why we do it there you have it episode three of the moral money podcast you can learn more about JFCS on Episode 3's show notes at moralmoneypodcast.com by clicking Listen Now or the Episodes tab on the upper right. Please do share this podcast with your friends and family, co-workers and congregants. Download the episodes, check us out on iTunes or however you get your podcasts. And our website is moralmoneypodcast.com. Really appreciate you being part of the Moral Money Podcast community. I hope you have a great and prosperous week and catch you soon for the next episode. Well, folks, there you have it, episode two of the Moral Money Podcast. You can learn more about Pastor Paul Bodwin at the show notes for episode two on moralmoneypodcast.com by clicking Listen Now or the Episodes tab on the upper right. As always, I hope you'll share this podcast with your friends and coworkers, family, neighbors, and congregants. Download the episodes and do check out the website and sign up for our mailing list on moralmoneypodcast.com. Have a great and prosperous week. Catch you soon for the next episode of the Moral Money Podcast.